Welcome to the Victorious Souls Podcast with self-love coach, Danielle Burnock. Things happen in our lives that make us feel powerless. But Danielle believes that anyone can become a victorious soul by reclaiming what belongs to them, their value, their belovedness, and their God-given superpower. The Victorious Souls Podcast is dedicated to empowering you to rise up, reclaim, and embrace the change from survive to thrive as a victorious soul through the power of love. And now, here's that lady on the internet who loves you, Danielle. Welcome to Victorious Souls Podcast with me, your host, Danielle Burnock, that lady on the internet who loves you, connecting you to the love that heals so you can love yourself from survive to thrive. Today, I have my guest, Amanda Blackwood. She is an artist, an author, a speaker, a podcast host, a trauma recovery mentor, and a survivor of human trafficking, which is going to be really interesting with that new movie out. She's a passionate to educate others on what human trafficking actually is and what it actually looks like and why the media is damaging the fight. I can't wait to get into that. Thank you for being with me today, Amanda. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about who is Amanda. Tell us about you. Well, first and foremost, I'm a believer. Um, I am married to a wonderful man now for a year and a half, who is one of the audio engineers for our church. And when we first met, I had four cats of my own. He had two cats and a dog. So between the two of us, we tell people all the time that we have a petting zoo. (laughs) (laughs) Alrighty. So growing up, tell us about what it was like when you were growing up. I know that your trauma started early. It did. Uh, My earliest experience that I can remember of uh, being molested, I was only four years old. So I was already off to a really rocky start. It continued on throughout my teen years. I was raped at 17 years old. It just, there was one thing after another constantly, and Mm. it came from so many different angles. So growing up in this household, my dad was physically abusive. My mother was mentally and emotionally abusive. My brother was my, my earliest molester. That was my entire family and we were in a military household. So we moved around a lot and I didn't really have any extended family or anybody to reach out to. Wow. So when I was about eight or nine years old, I started sneaking out of the house and running away to church on Sundays. Wow. How did you know to do that? How'd you even know to go to church or how, how'd you even have access to that? We said prayer at dinner time, but it was only at dinner time. Never when we were out. It was only when we were at the house. And I remember asking, yeah, I, I remember asking when I was really young, it's like, who are we talking to? Because we're all here. Who is this, this invisible person that we're talking to and praying to? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I was the kid. Wow, yeah. <laughs> I was the kid that figured out the truth about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny when I was like four years old. Mm. So I was smart enough to start figuring this stuff out. And I knew there was something up. Mm. So I started sneaking off to church and the church that I went to was on the military base. Mm. It was a non-denominational Christian church or Catholic church, depending on what time you showed up. (laughs) (laughs) It was the only one on the base. And the same guy taught both services. 
He was a chaplain. He was a very, very interesting man. Um, <laughs> but my parents got upset when they found out that this was a, this is what I was doing on Sunday mornings because they said, we're Methodists. We don't get, want you getting the wrong idea. You need to go to a Methodist church. And I didn't understand what that meant. Well, what's Methodist? Yeah. So I ran away from home again the next Sunday and went and asked my pastor. <laughs> oh, that would be so confusing. All that abuse at home. And then, you know, we're Methodist. We need you to be Methodist. I'm like, is Methodist abusive? Is Methodist molestation? What's Methodist? Right. If what we are is Methodist, I don't want to be it. Yeah, <laughs> I, could, I could see that. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. But my pastor at that church was a really, really amazing person. Um, the military base that we were living on at the time ended up closing down when I was 12. And basically, we were part of the base closing team. So he had left before everybody else, you know, before we did. And I remember going down to the church and uh, chatting with him for a little while, my brother and I both. And Interesting. Took- Your brother went with you? Occasionally occasionally Interesting. at that point the the abuse that he was perpetrating had already stopped it didn't start again until we moved and i was 12 13 years old but the earliest abuse only happened when i was four and then there was like this huge long span of mm-hmm. not getting molested by him and i think a lot of that happened because we felt like it was the two of us against the world mm-hmm. we were all we, each other had I had to turn to this abuser to be able to help me get through the rest of the abuse in the household. So there was a very unusual bond. Yeah. But when he tried to molest me again later on, when I was 12, 13 years old, that's when everything broke down and I began to truly hate my brother. Mm. I guess I was too young to figure that out when I was four. Oh yeah. You're four. My goodness. You don't know what peanut butter is, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I just what knew I liked it. What are, they, what are they putting cookies? Why do I like these? I don't know. You, yeah, <laughs> you were four. <laughs> right. <laughs> Your brain doesn't create this the, the narrative to be able to figure out what the story is here. Yeah. You know, you don't know the parts of your own body. Right. Right. And I've had a lot of people try to claim, including him, that the abuse never happened when I was four because I didn't have that visceral, guttural reaction to him when I was four. So. Mm. But that wouldn't make any sense. Mm. <laughs> so no. I went down to the church there right before he left and he picked up a couple of the hymnals and he actually, we asked him, can you sign our books? <laughs> you know, like kids with yearbooks, uh, we, we handed him our hymnals and he actually hand wrote little messages in these hymnals Aww. to us. And we had those things for a long time. My parents, I believe they ended up t- throwing them out mm. a few years later, but we had them and we loved them and read them as often as we could. We had our favorites uh, marked in the book. (laughs) And we had this, this sense of connection to God because we had snuck away and gone to church. And I went more often than my brother did. Mm -hmm. There are many Sundays I was sitting in the front row as a nine, 10 year old child paying absolute attention to church when the other kids at the back were getting scolded by the parents, Mm -hmm. you know, they were trying to run away to not go to church. (laughs) And you're running away to go to church. There we have this big difference. Yeah. That was your safe place. It was, it was, I needed that sense of stability and structure and, 
someplace that I could escape from everything else that was happening in my life. Wow. Where, where did you live then? And what state or country? That was in Victorville, California. We oh. were stationed at George Air Force Base, which closed down in 1992. Wow. Interesting. I have a relative who lives in Victorville. Oh, really? <laughs> That's <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. Not to the get sidetracked here. <laughs> <laughs> the old military base is still there, but it's in absolute shambles now. And there's a mm. prison across the street from from where I lived. Wow. So where do you live now? I am now in Denver, Colorado. Mm. Rocky Mountain High. <laughs> yes. Much, much happier surroundings. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Well, in your, your bio, you were trafficked three specific times, very different, and in three different places. That's, let's unpack that a little bit. How old were you when the first one happened? Where were you? And And how did you get out? And unpack that for us. How'd that happen? So when you grow up in this household of constant abuse uh, and molestation and rape and all of that stuff, you feel like that's what your life is is supposed to be. This is your lot in life. You are everybody else's punching bag and there has to be one somewhere. So it might as well be you. So by the time I was 18 years old, I was struggling to figure out what healthy relationships look like. I'd never had that really modeled for me. Mm-hmm. I wanted to find somebody out there that could take care of me. I was, I had started running away and, and like leaving home, trying to be permanent when I was 15. Mm-hmm. So by the time I was 18, I was living out of the state away from my parents. I had floated from one house to another, sleeping on people's couches, picking up work wherever I could. Basically I was homeless. I was a drifter. Wow. And one of the guys that I ended up meeting and dating was more than twice my age. Wow. I did not know at the time that the man had ties to organized crime on the East Coast. Mm. I did not know at the time that he was a drug dealer. Uh, I got myself into kind of a, a dicey situation by dating this guy because I was in this desperate situation looking for a place to stay. Yeah. You know, I figured if I gave him what it was that everybody seemed to always want from me, rather than waiting for somebody to take it away from me, that I could actually gain something for it. So I was in this relationship with this guy, whether I loved him or not, because I needed a place to stay. Mm. And this man took advantage of that. He learned how to make me uh, very complicit, Mm. very, um, very eager to do whatever it is that he asks of me. And one day his buddy came over and asked us both to go to Las Vegas with him for a birthday trip. And my boyfriend at the time told him, I can't go that I've got to work. I've got some stuff coming up that I can't miss, but man to leave the room for a minute. And when I was welcomed back into the room, the way it was presented to me was I would get to go on this all expenses paid trip to Las Vegas, Nevada. And my brain immediately went to that roller coaster that's at the top of New York, New York on the outside of the building. Cause I'd mm. already been on that roller coaster once during one of the events where I ran away from home. Mm. I loved the roller coaster and couldn't wait to go back. Instead, we went to the airport and this buddy of his took my driver's license to be able to show it to the people at the gate so that I could get on, on the plane. I was barely uh, 18. It wasn't even a driver's license. It was an ID card. 
Mm. And we got on the plane. When we got to Las Vegas, he kept my ID. So he said it was for safekeeping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was money paid at the front counter for people to not ask questions. And I didn't know what was going on. Mm. I was allowed to order room service once a day. But the hotel staff was told that they were to drop it off outside of the door and walk away. They were not to engage with me in any way. They were not to see me or talk to me or ask any questions about me. And for 52 hours in this hotel room, there was this vicious cycle of him going down and gambling and then coming upstairs and raping me. And then he would eat and pass out and then he would get up and go gamble and drink again. And just this, this horrible cycle. And while I was there, I did order the room service. I I ate as much as I could, but I also knew that if I left this room, I wouldn't be able to get back in. I didn't have a room key. Mm. I didn't have any ID. So if I went to the police, they wouldn't know who I was. Um, They wouldn't care who I was. And I would end up homeless in Las Vegas. And the better option to me was to put up with what it was that had been forced on me for those 52 hours and then go back to where I had been living in Arizona rather than being homeless in Vegas. Because Arizona, I at least knew some other people and I may be able to find somebody else's couch to look, wow. to sleep on. And when we got back, that's exactly what happened. You left him when you got back? Yep. I got as much as I could carry to get out of there and I found somebody's couch to sleep on and I left. Wow. Wow. So what happened after you left there? You live in Arizona. What did you do with your life then? Uh, I floated around and pretty much lived as a drifter again for a little while. Eventually, I made my way down to Florida. And when I was in Florida, the purpose for being there was that I had fallen out of a hayloft on a job in Arkansas working in a horse farm. And I needed surgery done on my knee. And my dad's father lived in Florida. So I was going to go down to Florida and stay with her while I got this knee surgery so that she could take care of me. And I I would have a safe place to stay for a little while while I recuperated. And I got down to the Daytona Beach bus station. And there's a bunch of stuff that happened in between. I'm definitely making this a shorter version. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because you were still in touch with your parents. I was surprised to hear that because your dad's... Your dad's dad, you said, or your dad's stepdad or your brother, who was it that lived in Florida? That was my dad's mom. Your dad's mom. My grandmother. Mm. So uh, I'd gotten all the way down to the Daytona Beach bus station and I asked, I called them and asked them to come and pick me up. It was about 1030 at night um, so that I could come and stay with them. And my dad's stepfather answered the phone. So my grandmother's mm. husband. And he said, we're not coming to get you. You're on your own. Good luck. And hung up. Wow. I had $5 to my name. And I was so sick of bouncing around from one place to another and living as this basically homeless drifter. I had been doing it since I was 15, though. Wow. How old were you now? I was 19. I was still pretty young. I knew that I could work my way into or out of whatever situation I needed to, because I was young and smart and I could figure this out. Yeah. Did you end up getting the surgery? I never did. So you got sent down there for them to take care of you and they didn't take care of you. Right. Right. And I still have a pretty messed up knee. Uh, (laughs) It makes weird noises when I'm going up the stairs, but that just might be age at this point. Um, (laughs) 
So I was wow. there at the Daytona Beach bus station, sat down on the curb and started sobbing as any 19-year-old oh, in yeah. that kind of situation would, right? And a young couple got off the next bus from New York and they came and they found me and they asked me what was wrong. And I gave them the whole sob story, literally through sobs. I don't know how they understood me. Um, (laughs) But he was 22 and she looked about 18 or 19. She looked about my age. Turned out she was 15. And this couple offered me a place to stay. And they said that they would give me a place to stay until I could get on my feet. Mm -hmm. But what they really meant was they were going to give me a place to stay until they found the highest bidder. And within a couple of weeks, they sold me to a man named Esteban. I was locked up in a small room with no food, no water for 23 and a half hours. Oh, wow. No bathroom facility of any kind. And back when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, there was this fantastic show on TV that I absolutely loved called MacGyver. (laughs) A man could fix anything with a paper clip and a rubber band. And there are women all over the world obsessed with Richard Dean Anderson because of MacGyver. (laughs) And duct tape. Can't forget duct tape. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But I I was one of those that was obsessed with him when I was 19. I had loved the show. I always wanted to know how he was able to fix these things and make stuff work. So I MacGyvered my way out of the room. Wow. How'd you do that? (laughs) Oh my gosh. There were so many different things that I tried. I mean, I don't want to go into too many details because it is written in the book, uh, detailed pieces of a shattered dream. Um, But I I had to get smart. I had to sit down and calm myself down and sit and think for a few minutes. How do I get out of this? What would MacGyver do? (laughs) What would MacGyver do? (laughs) Wow. And when I managed to get out of the room, the the guy that had locked me up in the room, Esteban, uh, came after me. Mm. And I remember running off into the streets. I saw a police car and I tried to flag them down. It was a female police officer and I'm screaming at her and trying to wave her down. And I could tell just from the look on her face that she thought I was insane. She did not believe a word I was saying. I mean, who would? This guy locked me up and I've been starved and i don't know what happened and i think i was sold and i think i think i was kidnapped i don't know what's happening i i don't know how long i was locked up but i'm lost and who would believe a story like that you know especially in the absolute worst parts of daytona beach known for rampant drug use mm-hmm. she didn't yeah, believe i can't speak to my think someone should listen but that's just me <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> I think a lot of people would go into shock in that situation. And I don't think she was any different. Mm-hmm. But I do know that she saw this guy doing an illegal U-turn in his car. And she saw that and went after mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. But I never went and tried to figure out what happened to him. I was scared. I just, I left. Yeah. I ran where'd off. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? You're in Daytona Beach, Florida. Where'd you go? Uh, I found some other people to stay with. I, I put my life in the hands of total strangers yet again, lived through a hurricane. <laughs> this was in 99. So there's no cell phones or anything like that. Just laying around. Um, I started getting lots and lots of jobs. Mm-hmm. So I was working from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. as a telephone 
directory service operator. So when you used to dial 411 to get directory service, I was one of the people that would answer the phone. I was really good at that job. As soon as I got off work at four o'clock, I would walk across the street to Sears and start working at 4.30 and work there until 10.30 at night. I got off work at 10.30 at night. I would borrow somebody's car and go deliver pizzas until 2 a.m. At 2 a.m., I stopped and I drove to the home of the person who owned the car who worked a night shift, didn't need their car during those hours. And I would watch over their two-year-old child while they were working. I would sleep while the child slept. And I would get up at seven in the morning and go do it all again. So I was working basically 24 hours a day. Wow, that's a lot. How long did you do that for? (laughs) I did that until the little boy's dad decided he was going to move to Colorado, of all places. (laughs) He asked if I wanted to go, and I said, absolutely, get me out of Florida. (laughs) Okay. And his mother flew from Colorado to Florida to help with the move, and the four of us loaded up in a little car, and we got to about... It was um, Ohio. I'd never been to Ohio. They were going to swing through Ohio to say hi to some family member. I think it was her brother. Mm -hmm. And we got there and they decided that they were not taking me any further. And this family dumped me off on the side of the road in Ohio, in a small town in the middle of nowhere. Oh, my goodness. Why? (laughs) I've never figured it out. I guess she didn't like me. The mother didn't like me. I don't know if maybe she thought that I was trying to use her son or whatever it was. I I didn't care to, to probe or pry into it anymore. Wow. And now you're in Ohio and you've been in Arizona. You've been in Nevada and Florida, Arkansas. You briefly mentioned that. <laughs> and now Ohio. So... Oh my goodness, on the side of the road, did you do? I hitchhiked to the airport. <laughs> did I got you out of Dodge. saved up from all that working? I did, um, but it wasn't enough really to get me much of anywhere. So I actually had to call um, a, a former relationship, a mm-hmm. former man that I had been briefly married to. Oh. Um, <laughs> And that was in Arkansas. He got me out of Ohio and got me to Arkansas. And uh, my son was the result. Oh. Okay. I went through so much at that point. It was, my my son was born on August 31st of 2000. Mm -hmm. And I had an emergency hysterectomy on September 1st of 2000. Oh, wow. Less than 24 hours later. I died three times in the operating table. Oh, man. Bled to death. So when you wake up from something like that, you think, hey, I literally just died. I have a new lease on life. I am going to go live my life. So I moved to L.A. (laughs) You were in Arkansas when that happened, right? Yes. You're in Arkansas. So how long did you stay there? You had to recover from that. You didn't like just go to LA right then. Oh, yeah. Did you? I stayed there for a few years. Okay. Um, but I'm like you my... had to recover, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> my ex-husband pulled some tricky stuff in the courts um, and divorced me without my knowledge mm. and got custody of our son. Oh. 
I had what was called any reasonable visitation, but he felt like he was in control of whatever was reasonable and he was not a reasonable man. Mm. So um, there were repeated rapes and molestations when I tried to visit with my son. And finally I decided that, you know, no matter what I do, I'm not going to be able to actually have a relationship, a real relationship with my own child. Mm. And it was, it was a heartbreaking decision to leave but I had to do what was going to be best just for him and for me. Mm -hmm. And my son didn't need to grow up watching that. Yeah. Yeah. And as horrible as this man was to me, he was a good father. Wow. (laughs) I using things in, in humanity. Oh my God. Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, and if you think about it up until then, I had been this, this drifter Mm -hmm. for, probably about a third of my life at that point. I started running away at 15 years old and sleeping on people's couches. I was still doing that at 24 years old when I left. Wow. So I knew I could not take care of a child. I couldn't even really take care of myself. Yeah. I had to do what was best for my child and I needed to let him just be with his father. Have you, do you have any contact with him now? Minimal. Um, His father passed away in 2020 Mm. from a terrible car accident. And for a little while, we had some very open communication. It was the first time ever that we'd had any kind of real communication. But his wife uh, had a baby on Mother's Day this year. And I haven't heard from him since. Mm. I've reached out a few times and there's just, there's no response. Mm. So I, I just sit back and let him have his space right now and I'll keep trying. Yeah. I just need some time. Yeah. Keep trying. So you yeah. ended up in LA. How did you get to LA? And then what happened when you were in LA? Because you, your other thing you mentioned, it was in Scotland. So how in the right. heck did you get to Scotland from LA? <laughs> well, LA is actually part of the Scotland story. So When I moved to LA, it was as it had always been. It was because of a guy, because I couldn't do anything for myself. It had to be for someone else. I had not yet figured out who I was outside of a relationship. Mm. I'd been in physical, intimate relationships since I was four. So that was a part of my identity at the time. I had to root that out, but I didn't know how. So I got to LA and my whole idea in LA was that I wanted to be an assistant to somebody important. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I figured looking that was that identity. <laughs> right. Exactly. I was looking for my identity everywhere except where I was supposed to. Mm. So I got out there and instead of becoming an assistant to somebody important, I start, I, I was thrown into the deep end of the acting pool and I was on Alias and Will and Grace. I modeled for Harley Davidson, a couple cosmetics and blue jeans ads. I did all kinds of really cool stuff and I still felt empty. Wow. So 2004 was about the time the internet dating started to really kind of pick up speed and become a big thing. So I jumped on there and was trying to meet people and I wanted to have a, a real relationship. Everything that I had had so far at that point, I knew wasn't a real relationship. It was a, uh, what I call subdermal. It was just beneath the skin. You mm-hmm. know, there's something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted a real relationship. So I used internet dating 
And I met this man in Scotland and I got to know him over a period of seven years while I was living in LA. Wow. That's a long time. I was scared. (laughs) I can appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) With everything that I had been through, I was not going to be making a mistake this time. Um, And we became kind of pen pals because he had his life out there. I was really starting to build a life in LA. Mm -hmm. I started working corporate jobs instead of as a waitress, just picking up work wherever I could. I actually had my name on the lease to an apartment for the first time ever. And I was really putting down roots. I was proud of myself. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm actually doing this thing. Living. (laughs) Yeah. Eventually, I got a job as a mall cop, and I started out there as the low man on the totem pole. And within five months, I took over as the director of public safety and security for six properties in L.A. County. I got an $11,000 a year raise. I got raises for all of my employees. I was doing really well. I was celebrating by taking myself out for a nice dinner just by myself. No date, no nothing. I would take myself out for dinner. I was so proud of feeling like a whole human being or starting to feel like a whole human being. And I didn't have to have somebody else tell me that I'd done good. I could tell myself that I had been doing all right. Wow. That's awesome. And then he asked me to get a fiance visa. I I had gone to visit him and he'd come out to visit me. Oh, he had over those seven years. Okay. Yeah. And he asked me to get a fiance visa. He wanted me to marry him and move to Scotland and be with him for the rest of our lives in the land of kings and queens and castles and fairy tales. And that's (laughs) what every child who grows up watching Disney movies dreams of happening. You know, basically I was going to be Cinderella. I had been, I, I had lived in this terribly abusive house my entire life. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was going in life. And this man wanted to marry me and take care of me and move me to to Scotland. I was excited. And that's and, not what happened because you live in Denver now. So um, right. <laughs> something went terribly wrong. Right. Right. As it usually did. <laughs> As it did. So I got on the plane. I got, well, gave up my job. Gave up my home, sold my car, and I got on a plane and I flew to Scotland. It took him seven years to get me there. It took him seven days to start trafficking me. It went very wrong very quickly. Wow. So there was no marriage. It was all just a ruse. He just was playing the long con. Even then, I still believed that we were going to get married. Wow. Yeah, and it was... It was really an, an awkward place to be for, for my mind, for my heart, because I believed that since I'd known this man for seven years, I truly did love him and I mm. wanted to be with him. And if this is what I had to do to be with him, then so be it. Because wow. this is my last shot at happiness. Wow. I was so he was selling you to months. other men and stuff? Uh, he had other people coming over to the house almost nightly. It was five, six, seven days a week. Wow. How long were you there and how did you get out of that? There's several different times that I tried to get out. Very early on, I tried to, he had taken my passport and my driver's license, my debit card, all that stuff for safekeeping. Sounds like Arizona. Yeah. Um, 
and he had put them all in a very small safe. And I remember there was one night when the abuse was happening. I kept on giving him more and more whiskey because he had a bit of a drinking problem anyway. And he got so drunk that by the end of the night, I told him, if you give me back my driver's license and my passport and stuff so that I can go down to the bank tomorrow, I can go pull out all of my money and we can put it in your account so that we can spend it. And since he was heavily intoxicated, he believed this was a brilliant idea. (laughs) (laughs) So he gave me back all my documentation and I hid it. And the very next day, rather than going to the bank, the first thing I did was hop on the computer and try to buy an emergency flight home back to Mm. L.A. And the first flight out was something like $12,000. There was no way I could afford that. I had barely more than $2,000 in my bank. That's an emergency flight? Yeah. Yeah. If you mention the word emergency to an airline, they gouge you. So I didn't know that at the time. See, I would have thought the Um, opposite. But I, right. I can see that it's all about profit. Oh, you have to go. So I get to make money. Uh, right. Supply and demand. Yeah. And years earlier, my my mom's father had passed away on my birthday. And I remember that she, they were calling around trying to find her a flight out. And she called one particular airline. I won't say the airline's name. But she called one particular airline uh, to try and get an emergency flight out because she needed to get home for the funeral. And they were looking to charge her $800. And we just didn't have it at the time. My dad said, you know what, I'm going to go grab the other line and I'm going to start making phone calls too. He didn't realize she'd already called this airline. He called that same airline and asked how much it would be for a flight out the next morning. And exact same thing, except for he didn't mention emergency. And they said, oh, we've got a seat available on the next flight out tomorrow morning. That's only 200 and something. Because she mentioned she needed to get out because it was her father's funeral. Her father had just died. They were upping it by 400%. Wow. That's awful. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't remember that, but a flight out of Scotland last minute is always going to be expensive anyway, when you're flying halfway around the world to get back mm. to LA. Wow. The earliest flight out that I could afford was five days from that day. And I had it in my mind because I had had people tell me my whole life, oh, I know you're going through hard times, but you've been through worse before. You'll make it through this too. And that is a very dangerous mindset because I had it in my mind, just like I did when I was in Las Vegas. I can get through the next however many hours, just like in Las Vegas. I can get through the next 52 hours to get back to where I was. Here I am in Scotland. I can get through the next five days of this abuse and then I'm home free. What I didn't realize. No. Oh, no, I wish I wish I had the ticket. I didn't get to the flight because no, I mean, of you the went abuse. back to the guy. I had I was still there. It was it was January in Scotland. The snow when my plane landed was as big as the palm of my hands. Mm-hmm. There was nowhere that I could go. <clears throat> I knew nobody else in Scotland. I would have frozen to death if I just left. Mm-hmm. So I had to put up with it. And the abuse was so bad that I ended up with a kidney infection so severe. I was in the hospital when the flight left. Wow. So how did you get out of there? Um, Eventually, I started to get a little bit of hope back. Uh, There was an incident at a railway station. We'll get to that in a couple of minutes. I tried to commit suicide. Mm. And... When I left that rail station that day, I had a very strong message that had been given to me. 
there was somebody that showed up and changed everything for me and gave me hope. Mm-hmm. And I started leaving these little breadcrumb trails. I had decided when I was a teenager that I was going to study psychology, at least on my own, because I needed to know why things kept happening, why people thought and and did things the way that they did. Why did these patterns of abuse exist in my life? I wanted to understand because I needed to break this chain. Yeah. And I had studied it for so long. I had learned about Stockholm syndrome, which now we call co- trauma bonding, but I still call it Stockholm syndrome because I'm mm-hmm. old. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm familiar with both terms. So, <laughs> and for those, so, for those of you who don't know what it is, it's when the person who is trapped by the other forms a bond with them and doesn't want to leave because they have needs with that. They are attached. Yes, Exactly. And I knew that he would know what trauma bonding was too. So I couldn't necessarily say the words that were anything like that. I had to actually act. I had to create this illusion for him. Mm-hmm. And in doing this and building this up over the next two months, I started to actually get lost in it myself. I started to actually farm this trauma bond. And I had to remind myself constantly, this is not why I'm here. This is not what I'm doing. I need to keep my head in the game and stay focused. Mm. And after that two months passed, here it was finally, it was June. And I told him, I said, you know, the day that you and I were supposed to get married, according to the fiance visa, has already come and gone. And if I overstay my visa beyond the six months I'm allowed to have, then I could get kicked out of the country and never be allowed back according to UK law. Mm. And you, since you are a police officer. He was a police officer? Oh my goodness. Since you're a police officer, you could lose your job. And we wouldn't want that, would we? So if you send me back, I could live out there for the next six months. I've got friends out there. I've got connections out there. And then I could come back. And if I came back six months from now, I'd be back in time for Christmas. And wouldn't it be wonderful to have this be our first Christmas together? (laughs) Freaking Oscar worthy. (laughs) (laughs) What a performance. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I was proud of myself. I was shaking the whole time, but he couldn't see it because I had my hands hiding under the table. Mm. (laughs) Within two hours, he purchased a round trip flight for me. Wow. But that doesn't mean that that's where the abuse stopped. Of course, I never went back to Scotland. I've never been back since then. Um, I do hope to return someday just so I can form some better memories with my now husband. Um, but when I got back, he hunted for me and he did everything he could to attack me. So mm-hmm. while he had the people over, while I was being molested and raped, he was taking photos and videos of these happenings. And he put all of this stuff onto a photo sharing website and was sending it in emails and stuff to every boss that I got after that. He was sending it to friends that I made after that. If he found out there was any kind of a connection to me at all, he would send this stuff to those people. I lost jobs. I lost friends. My roommate, who had been a friend of mine before I ever went to Scotland, received one of these emails, I believe. And she didn't know how to make sense of it. And I tried to explain to her what had happened, but I didn't know that what I went through even had a name yet. Mm -hmm. 
So when I tried to explain it to her, I kind of, I, I kind of wasn't clear, I guess, because mm. she couldn't make sense of how something like that could happen without consent. So she started telling people that I had been a high priced call girl. And it destroyed me. It destroyed mm. our friendship. Um, it destroyed that living situation for me. I moved immediately. I, I was on the run again, bouncing from one place to another, moving over and over and over again, just trying to find some place to land. Eventually in 2016, I moved out to Colorado, loaded up an SUV with my cats because I had accumulated some cats. <laughs> I was all right with being the crazy cat lady. I didn't ever want to end up in another relationship. And in 2018, I was in an anti-trafficking conference where I learned what trafficking actually was. And then in 2019, I found out that this man had made me famous on a pornography website by posting all these fo photos and videos wow. with links to my personal information, including social media contact information and people, probably the worst moment for me was when I was recognized in a grocery store and asked for my autograph, not because of being on Will and Grace or Alias or all the modeling jobs I did or modeling for Harley Davidson being in their motocross catalog, all that cool stuff I did completely washed away. I was recognized for being in a pornographic video. Oh. I reached out immediately to a couple of anti-trafficking organizations out here in Colorado. One of them paired me up with pro bono legal services. They immediately started contacting the pornography websites and having the stuff pulled down. And the other one got me into counseling and therapy. And that was a game changer. Yeah. I oh, now yeah. am so outspoken and I've written my books. I have 13 now, but one of them is my autobiography as a survivor of trafficking. I am so outspoken that now that man is more afraid of me than I ever was of him. Ah. Wow. How did you, did you have, where was your faith in all of this? I mean, as a kid, you were escaping to go to church. That was your safe place. Then you have all this. I mean, was God there in any of this journey of yours? And, you, you know, you started with, who are you? You said, I'm a believer. So it's like you kept your faith or you refound. Where does that go? <laughs> <laughs> For a long time, I lost it. I thought, and, you know, it's not even so much that I lost it. It was that. It was skewed. I still believed that God existed. I just believed that he forgot that I existed. Yeah. And that's not the way that God works. Right. So there was one moment in Scotland that I kind of glossed over the, the, the suicide attempt. I had gotten up one day and decided that this was the day. I'm ending my life. I'm done with all of this. My entire life has been nothing but pain. And every time that I have ever made any kind of progress, I have always been knocked back down. I can't live like this anymore. Nobody is coming to help me. Nobody's coming to rescue me. I was desperate. At the time I was a smoker and I grabbed my one cigarette. So that's all I was going to have for the whole day. And I left the house and there was an old church right on the main road that was built in the 1600s. It was a beautiful, old, absolutely stunning church in a town called Bells Hill, Scotland. And I went down to that church and in the graveyard, there was a headstone that, that had been so weather beaten and worn that all you could really see on the headstone anymore was the year. And the year was 1776, which is, you know, American independence from the English. 
Yeah. I took that as a sign. <laughs> I'm still looking for independence from this UK guy. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I sat down in the graveyard and I put my, my spine up against the headstone and it was cold and the grass was wet. I didn't care. And I sat down and I talked to whoever that was. The name was some worn off. I didn't know it was a man or woman. I didn't care. That person that was six feet under was the best friend I had in Scotland. Because mm. I could tell them everything and they never judged me. <laughs> yeah, because that was... they're dead. So. <laughs> right, exactly. They didn't talk back at all. Yeah. <laughs> I got no attitude. <laughs> that was my best friend. And I just, I, I realized how sad and lonely and desperate that was. And finally, after I finally, I just completely spilled my guts and said everything that I was going to do that day and everything that had led me to that moment, I got up and rather than heading to the train station quite yet, I wasn't ready. I went and tried the front doors to the church and it was locked. It's a very, very old church. I'm not surprised it was locked built in the 1600s. Come on, got to give them a break. Um, (laughs) And it was a very small church. It's not like Mm -hmm. somebody actually lived inside this building. I sat on the front porch and I watched the people walk by and I watched the cars drive by and I kept on praying, please send somebody to help me, send somebody to ask me if I'm okay. If somebody asks me if I'm okay, then I'm going to know that that's the person that I can trust. And I can, I can ask for help. I can tell them what's been happening. And nobody came. And eventually, after about an hour to an hour and a half, I finally got up and I walked to the train station. And my plan once there was to smoke my cigarette while I waited for the train to show up. And as soon as I heard the train, I was going to get up and run down the tracks and commit suicide by train. And while I was sitting there on the platform, I had just lit my cigarette and was kicking back and relaxing a little bit, enjoying my very last cigarette. Some man walked out onto the platform and he saw me smoking and he asked me for a light. I handed him my little book of matches and I said, here you go. You can keep them. I won't need them anymore. And the reason I said these words was because I wanted him to understand this is a red flag. Ask, why aren't you going to need them anymore? And instead he said, I, I won't either and handed him back to me. And I knew I couldn't make him care. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to care no matter what I did. There was nothing I could do. And this was my last ditch effort. So I went back to smoking my cigarette, shoved my matches in my pocket and just went on. And a little boy walked out on the platform about then. He was probably about four. And he ran up and he took this man's hand. And this little boy turned and he saw me. He didn't just look at me and see that there was a person sitting over there. This little boy, this little tiny guy looked at me and he saw me. And it was the first time anybody had actually seen me in years. Mm -hmm. And he knew me, I felt, which scared me half to death because even I didn't know me. Mm -hmm. And I knew that this little guy, he was not looking at me with the eyes of a four-year-old. He was looking at me with the eyes of a God who wanted me to stop what I was doing. Wow. And I stopped what I was doing. 
And I, it took me about 20 seconds to realize that I wasn't running at the train. I was running back toward my prison. And in that moment, I was thanking God for miracles not yet received because I knew that if I was going to keep living, if I had to keep going through what it was that I was going through, I wasn't going to die here in Scotland, some victim of some terrible torture. There was a purpose in my life and he knew what it was. And he was trying to tell me what it was. Wow. Wow. So how did you get out of Scotland? And now you're doing all these things. And, you know, that's a whole lot of oppression and sorrow and grief. And it'd be so easy to have a victim mentality because, as you said, it keeps happening over and over and over. But this encounter with this little boy through the spirit of God put hope in your heart. And how did you get out of there and become the victor that you are now? So the the beginning of the therapy in 2019 was a huge step in the right direction for me. Um, So the first therapist that I had, First of all, I'm pretty sure that I traumatized her so badly. She's done with therapy completely. She's left the industry. Uh, (laughs) She was not ready for my story. (laughs) But the second one that I was paired with was amazing. And I went into this having done the studies that I'd done with psychology and wanting to learn about how the brain works and why people do the things that they do. And I told her, I said, right off the bat, first, number one, do not come at me with prescription medication ideas. I don't want a Band-Aid. I want a shovel. And second, do not walk on eggshells. Do not pull the punches. Do not treat me like I'm going to be some fragile piece of porcelain that's going to break easily. If that was going to happen, it would have happened already. And going into therapy with her knowing exactly what I needed helped her to supply me with the tools that I needed to be able to move over the speed bumps that had been slowing me down all these years. I knew enough about psychology. I had studied enough about psychology. I just didn't know how it relayed in my life, why these patterns existed in my life and what all was connected to them. She helped me to get through all of this. And over the next year and a half, uh, she was a Christian therapist also, which was very important to me at the time. And over the next year and a half, uh, we worked together pretty, pretty closely throughout the pandemic and everything. Uh, in December of, well, in November of 2020, she told me, I don't think that there's much more that I can do to help you. Um, what I know you well enough to know that your journey is not done right here. What are you going to do next? And I said, you know, I don't know. I think I'm going to write my book. And she said, well, don't you already have some? I said, yeah, I've got a few that I've written. I said, but I'm ready to write the book. I'm ready to write my autobiography. And she said, oh, that's great. Okay. Well, Christmas is right around the corner. I'll check in with you in January. If you need me, let me know. In January, it came around and she reached out and she said, so how's it going? And I said, oh, it's, it's going all right. I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? She said, no, that's not what I mean. How's the book going? I said, oh, it's done. She said, what? aren't you still working your two full-time jobs? Yeah. She said, how did you write? Is it a short book? No, it's 350 pages. She said, how did you do that? I said, he moved. (laughs) 
God at that point had been telling me for years, write your book. And I said, no, I've got this other one I'm going to write first. Write Mm. your book. He said again. And again, I said, no, I've got this other one I'm going to write first. I've got this other series that I'm going to do. I've got these other projects I've got going on. I kept on putting it off. And finally, when I sat down to write the book, I couldn't stop writing the book. And it all came out at once. She said, well, now what are you going to do? And I said, I have no idea. She said, I have an idea. (laughs) She said, stick with me. I have an idea. I want you to paint. And I said, I've tried painting. I did watercolors and finger paints when I was a kid. And not everything is supposed to be a multicolored snowman. That's about all I could do. (laughs) Multicolored snowman. That's funny. Blobs. (laughs) So she said, I'm going to send somebody over with canvases and paintbrush and paints and stuff. And I want you to just try just sit down and try to paint. All right. All right. Within three months, I had sold my first painting back to the anti-trafficking organization that had paired me up with the counselors in the first place. They made prints of them and sold the prints to be able to help fund more therapy for other survivors of trafficking. Oh, wonderful. Within five months, I had painted a piece for a home for human trafficking survivors in Chicago, Illinois, I had sold my artwork internationally. Chicago Tribune learned about this unveiling of my art uh, called Carry Your Own Baggage. And I have a print of it hanging in my studio. The original is still hanging in their home for trafficking survivors. But it talks about how we all have to carry our our own baggage for a long time before we find a safe place to set it down. And the best place to set it down is at our Lord's feet. Amen. Wow. That painting was unveiled right about the same time that my book was published, which was on my 10 year anniversary of freedom from human trafficking. That was June of 2021. So after doing all of that hard work, I met my husband the following month in July of 2021. Wow! All of that stuff is what helped to get me through and to get over those speed bumps and hurdles and to retrain my brain and to understand what it was that I went through wasn't my fault, even though I had believed it for so many years. You have to be able to get this poison out of your system if you're ever going to heal from it. Yes. I love how you said about your second counselor. And before I even say that, I want to pause here for our listeners and point out to you that she went through one counselor and had to get another counselor. So don't give up on yourself. If you need a different counselor, you need another counselor, do what you need to do. And I love how you said, Amanda, you didn't want a bandaid. You wanted a shovel. You were ready to do the work. We have to do the work. Trauma does not heal itself. Time will not heal it. So you who are listening, my listeners, you have to do the work. I implore you, do something for yourself, whatever you need to do, but take some action because you have to be a willing participant in your own healing. Absolutely. So Amanda, before we we run out of time here, um, I don't want to neglect to get to how the media is getting it wrong about trafficking. You said that the media is getting it wrong. How are they getting it wrong? Please share that with us. I don't want to leave our listeners hanging. What's going on with that? So the biggest thing to recognize with that is to understand what trafficking is. There are so many misconceptions that we have because they're perpetuated by the media. The, the, the thing with trafficking 
the Department of Homeland Security defines human trafficking as the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or sex acts from another person. If you notice, there's no mention of transportation, that's human smuggling, and there's no mention of money. You do not have to make money off of somebody else to profit from them. So even though I was trafficked, these people didn't make money off of me in general. They would they would get other things out of it, uh, sadistic pleasures. That still counts. It is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or sex acts. So human pro- trafficking does not equal prostitution. Prostitution does not equal human trafficking. Same with smuggling. While there is a massive overlap in all of these areas, one does not equal the other, and you do not have to have experienced all of these things or any of those other things for it to be human trafficking. So there, the other big, big myth that they're perpetuating is the kidnapping scenario. Now, there's a brand new movie out there right now where it opens up with a kidnapping scenario. Less than 15% of all victims of human trafficking are trafficked by kidnapping. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. If you walk up to a total stranger on the street and you snatch them off of the street and you kidnap them, what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to fight. If you wait and you get to know the neighbor girl, little Sally, you get to know her over a period of a couple of years or so, and you have fed her and played games with her out in the yard and gotten to know her. If you tell her to do something, what's she going to do? She's been told her whole life to respect adults. She's not going to fight. More than 85% of all people who are trafficked are trafficked by people they know and trust and love. These are mothers and fathers and grandparents and aunts and uncles and boyfriends and girlfriends. Landlords. (laughs) I I have a friend who her story is she was trafficked by her her family from the age of three. So it's like, I know it's it's just, it's horrific that it seems that it's, much more of an intimate situation, relational situation, where I'm sure there are the kidnap ones and certain ones like that because evil's out there and they want to do it any way they can do it. But it makes more right. sense that they have the long con. They do the long con because yeah, they're looking for absolutely. the long-term outcome. Right. My long con was seven years you know, that's more common than a kidnapping scenario. So the people that are posting on social media about having been followed through the Target or Walmart and then through the parking lot and saying that this is, oh, this is human trafficking. It is more likely that this person is looking to mug or molest or rape you than it is that they're willing to human traffic you. Yeah, Human trafficking for a is a short term crime, not a long term crime. Right. Right. And sex trafficking only takes about 14% of all human trafficking cases also. It's just what we talk about more here in the U.S. because it's more sensationalized. Mm. And probably the biggest thing that I see that the media is doing that's making this just a nightmare is if you ever see the headlines where they say 167 people arrested in a human trafficking sting, ask yourself who those people are that are getting arrested. Because if you get down to it, they're not the pimps. They're not the traffickers that are getting arrested. These are the prostitutes who are the victims of human trafficking. 
And they are the Johns who get nothing more than a typical fine between $80 and $120, depending on what state they're in, and then immediately released. The only people who are paying a significant price here are the already trafficked victims who now have a rap sheet for prostitution. Think about these things whenever you see these headlines. We have to do the hard work. We need to change these laws. It's... It's never going to change if we don't do something about it. And allowing the media to run this narrative is doing so much damage. I did not know that I was a victim of human trafficking because of what I was seeing in the media, because of what I was seeing in the news and the movies like Taken or this new movie that just came out. They didn't fit what it was that I went through. So what I went through didn't have a name. Wow. Wow. Well, is there something you want to make sure our listeners hear before we wrap this up and see how people can connect with you? Something you want to make sure that they take away from today? Yes, please reach out to me through my website, growthfromdarkness.com. And remember, the phrase that we've all grown up hearing, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, is a lie. Frederick Nietzsche said that in the 1800s, he died in an insane asylum. We can let go of that one now. The abusers and the abuse that we go through does not deserve the credit for making us who we are and for making us stronger. That belongs to him and him alone. God is the one who gives us that strength. And sometimes we got to use that shovel. We got to dig deep to find that strength, but it's in there. Yeah. Wow. So you have books, you have a podcast, you do mentoring, speaking. Um, What is your podcast? Tell us the names of your books and how can people connect? What socials are you on? Well, I won't go through all the books. Um, okay. I have 13 of them. Okay, there we go. <laughs> my autobiography for anybody wanting to know more about my life story is called Custom Justice. Uh, it's got one half of my face on the book cover. My most recent book is a cookbook called Surviving in the Kitchen, Recipes for Life, Love, and a Full Stomach. Um, my podcasts, I have three podcasts now. Wow. I have- <laughs> The Survivors is where I uh, interview other authors who are trauma survivors. Uh, They have written about overcoming their own past, how they did it, and they're uh, now giving hope to other people. That comes out every week. I also have a a podcast called Growth from Darkness. It breaks down what the trauma responses are, what the long-term consequences are of not fighting back against them, and how to fight back against them to retrain your brain and have a better, healthier, happier life. The third podcast is brand new and it's called That's a Phobia. Uh, I love this one just because I'm breaking down what the different phobias are and talking about um, if I can find somebody that is uh, familiar to all of us, talking about who they are and how they've experienced this phobia. But Mm. really, it's all about just trying to understand, again, how our brains work. Yeah. Um, Reach out to me through I'm very active on Facebook, Instagram. I'm on TikTok, not very often. Um, same thing with Twitter. I've got all these, probably the most prevalent is Facebook. So facebook.com slash Amanda Blackwood Survivor. Okay. Well, I will have the links in the show notes as well. So thank you for sharing your story with us today, Amanda. That's just enlightening. We need to hear these things. And thank you for your encouragement for those too. Because it's not true. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's not true. Because... We have to be an active participant. We have to choose to be stronger. We have to do 
the work. So thank you for doing the work and for all the things you do to help people. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. And our listeners, thank you for being with us today. And so until next time, I love you. Thank you so much for listening to the Victoria Souls Podcast. You matter and you are loved. We'd love to connect with you further. So please visit us at daniellebernock.com and grab a copy of Danielle's free audiobook. And remember, only you can change your life. No one can do it for you. <laughs>